So welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass podcast, or if you're watching this on YouTube, the vodcast. Today I've been given a bunch of questions that I asked on various social media platforms, and I'm going to be honest, I think, well, so far, I mean, I get asked some really great questions sometimes, but I think this batch of questions is just about the most interesting that I've been asked so far. I've really had to think about some of these. Um... I really dig deep to give my opinions in order to answer them. Some of them are quite simple. Some of them are about tools. Some of them are about, about practice. Some of them are about productivity. And some of them are a little bit about the future of Leathercraft and the philosophy behind it. So I've got my questions here on a Google Doc. And so I have them all prepared in front of me. I'm just going to dive right in and start this Q&A with probably the longest question that I've been asked so far, and it's a bit multifaceted. So there are several questions inside this question, but there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 questions overall. Okay, so exactly 10. And th this first question is intriguing because it's a little bit about the future of Leathercraft. The person who asked this question seems to be a little bit concerned about where it's going, where, where Leathercraft is heading. So I'll read it in its entirety first and then just break it down into several different questions. So share your thoughts on the future of Leathercraft. Do you think a trade that has been considered to be dying is seeing a rebirth or is it something that in a few years is going to slow down and become niche again? Also, how do you think new generations, Gen Z and others to come, will see Leathercraft with more social media and environmental awareness? and not necessarily more knowledge or education on the subject, will people shy away from animal products? Will they look for better made products and not care so much about brands or status? Feel free to synthesize the question for the podcast should you wish to respond to it. Well, I do wish to respond to it <laughs> with my opinions, and that's exactly what I can give you on this. I can't really give you facts uh, about the future, obviously. So the first part is... Share your thoughts on the future. Do you think a trade that's been considered dying is being given a rebirth? Let me just tackle that first for a second. Maybe it had been considered dying in the in the nineties and the early two thousands. I think the popularity of leathercraft as a hobby, I think, wasn't particularly high, and a lot of people capitalized on that and created YouTube accounts that have done very well because they started in the early days. But I think today is probably definitely at its peak. Have we reached the apex of it? I don't know. For about 2010 to 2016, it really kind of began to take off. And I think that's in part due to social media, Reddit, online forums and just the general access to information and access to communities where people can share information and their own experiences and ask questions i think that really started to take off i mean forums like uh, leatherworker.net have been around for a very long time but combined with social media and combined with uh, things like reddit it, it really kind of has taken off and i think that has really brought about 
an increase in interest in the craft. I also think, and this is from what I'm seeing and what probably what you're seeing as well, there is many more people online selling tools, selling leather in small quantities, like individuals and small businesses than there have ever been. And they're using social media to leverage that. So access to hardware, reinforcements, leather, patterns, online courses like my own, for example, has, has just risen over the last few years to a point where I think it's just Leathercraft has become a lot more accessible than it ever has been. And that is really what's feeding the increase in interest in Leathercraft as a hobby. So it's, it, in my opinion, it's, it's very far from dying out. Is it something that's in a few years going to slow down and become a niche again? Well, I still think it is quite niche. I mean, it's, it's very small in comparison to, I don't know, throw some pottery, macrame, uh, crochet, woodworking, uh, watercolor painting, you know, just, just to name a few. I still think it's it's very niche. I don't know that many people in the flesh, in person, who actually are involved in Leathercraft. I mean, I know hundreds, thousands, obviously, online from around the world. But it's not very often you bump into someone and you find out that their hobby is Leathercraft. It's still quite niche. You can find a lot of other, other hobbies, but Leathercraft, I still think it is very niche. But I understand what you're saying here. And the question is, is, is geared towards, is it going to slow down again? I just don't think so. I'd see, see more and more tanneries now, more and more suppliers who used to only to supply to larger companies and have minimum orders of like 100 skins. I see more and more of them uh, becoming open to selling small order quantities to individual artisans. I think that's only a, an indicator or a sign that uh, is probably not going to slow down. Will things fluctuate? Yes, naturally they do. But I don't, I can't see it going downhill. Um, but the next question, if ever, if ever it was to go downhill, this next question would actually tackle that. How do you think new generations, Gen Z and others to come, will see Leathercraft with more social and environmental awareness? Not necessarily education on the subject. Will people shy away from animal products? That's interesting. It'd be very easy to say yes. But then again, I, I remember a time... In the late, uh, maybe not in the late 80s, a bit young then, uh, the 90s and early 2000s, where there was a huge anti-fur movement. I mean, you would see billboards, demonstrations everywhere, anti-fur, from, especially from organizations like uh, PETA or PETA, P-E-T-A, using celebrities and things like that. I mean, I'm sure they still do now, but it was just so much more awareness about anti-fur all the time. And you would never see anybody wearing fur. I wouldn't see fur in any shops anywhere, even secondhand. But these days, when I go to London especially, I see quite a few people wearing fur. And you, if you go into any high-end stores like Harrods, for example, there are several departments in there that are selling furs of all different kinds. Now, I'm not here to give my opinion on whether uh, furs are right or wrong or taking skins off animals and... and you know, for the sake of it, and it's not a meat byproduct. I'm not giving my opinions on that at all. What I'm saying is I've observed a kind of a change in what people like and dislike. Because years ago, you walk around with fur, it's likely someone will follow you with, with a, a bucket of paint and throw it over you as some form of demonstration. But these days, it seems to be a bit more acceptable. And I think it's like anything else, it's, 
it goes up and down in popularity. Do I think that new generations will shun leather? I don't know. It's just one of those things that you, you just can't replicate it with synthetic materials in the same way. Maybe, but if it if that happens, I don't I can't see it lasting. I really can't see it lasting. I mean, leather is so ingrained in society, whether it's shoes or bags or everyday items that we all use. Um it's very rare to see people not using leather in some form. So could it reduce popularity with the new generations shying away from animal products? It's a possibility, but I don't think it will last. I don't think it will be a lasting trend. And there are always going to be people interested in handmade leather products and luxury goods. I can't see that being, being an issue. Could be wrong, but that's that's just my opinions here. Will they look for better made products and not care so much about brand and status? I think we're seeing that right now. I mean, I like to try and keep my finger on the pulse when it comes to online influencers, especially on YouTube, YouTube channels where people are purchasing luxury leather goods and uh, channels all about luxury bags, high-end designer bags. I like to watch these, not mainly because it interests me in the sense of purchasing. It interests me in the sense of I like to see what the trends are and what people are talking about and their thoughts on it. And one trend that I'm seeing at the moment that's happening right now is a trend of shunning the big labels. And when I see it, say big labels, I'm, I'm talking about the logos on the side of bags, on the side of t-shirts, on the side of shoes. It seems that many people are kind of moving away from the overt in your face logo thing which i never liked to be honest i don't actually like any logos on anything personally but i am seeing that as a new trend people moving away from that so will they look for better made products not care so much about brands and status i think human nature is is never going to forget about status whether that is look at me look how much i embrace minimalism look how environmentally conscious i am uh, look how I don't buy from these brands because they do testing on animals, for example. I mean, all of that is virtue signaling in order to gain some kind of status within a specific group. So we're never going to get rid of status. That's always going to be inbuilt into our DNA. Whether they care so much about brands or not, again, like anything, you know, I sound like a stuck record here, but I think it goes up and down in popularity over time. Are people going to not care about brands? Well, people are caring a lot about environmentally friendly brands at the moment, uh, brands that are socially conscious, and people are using those to signal to others, look at me, look how great I am. I mean, there's a reason that electric cars looked so weird, especially when they first came out. Tesla, maybe not so much, a bit more conventional looking car, but do you remember when the uh, when the Nissan Leaf first came out? or when the uh, Toyota Prius, the first, you know, commercial hybrid came out, they made the cars look weird so that people could stand out so that other people would notice what they're doing. It was a, a almost a sense of status. I remember there was a, a bit of a fight with the first hybrid coming out between Honda and Toyota. The Prius came out with this weird looking bubble car and it still looks awful today, in my opinion. But Honda went a different route and decided to come out with a hybrid, but they used their conventional civic well honda got their ass handed to them because people didn't want to buy a civic because 
other people might think is just a regular petrol car. Whereas if they wanted to show others that they were environmentally conscious and they were morally superior in some way, perhaps, they bought the Prius because when you see that, everybody knew what that car was because it didn't look like anything else. It really stood out. Okay, it was a brand, it was a label, it was status. And that comes from a podcast I was recently listening to about the marketing psychology behind why Toyota did so well with the Prius when it was an obviously unconventional looking car, shall we say, some might say ugly. But yeah, that's just something to to note. Will they look for better made products? That one I'm not 100% sure about. Everybody wants a better made product, for sure. If you have a choice between two and the only differentiating factor is one's better made, say handmade or more time is spent making it. But will the new generations look for better made products? That's difficult to say. Very difficult to say. So thank you for your question. Very intelligent question. A very interesting question. And uh, all I can give you is my opinion on what I've seen so far. So let's move on to the next question. Number two. What do you see as the future for high margin leather goods outside of handbags? Okay, so high margin leather goods. Um, luxury leather goods, goods that have a high margin where you're making good money from them. Should we be making leather bags for virtual reality headsets? In brackets, just kidding, don't actually think we should do this, but it's an example. I don't think it's a bad example. I've said in previous podcasts that if you're looking for something different to make, if you want to make something outside of a bag, a wallet, a card wallet, and you know the, the, you know, the top 10 most uh, popular crafts in Leathercraft, most popular products in Leathercraft, should I say, then looking for new technology and creating leather goods in order to carry that technology or protect that technology. I remember when uh, Leica was really popular, it's still popular today, but they went through a phase where Leica cameras, high-end, very expensive cameras, very traditional looking cameras, were very, very popular. And there were a number of leather crafters online selling camera bags, camera cases, handmade for Leica, uh, and also creating like a, a leather carry case. I'll insert an image of what that looks like. And that was really popular. And I, I think that's a great idea, looking at what new technology is coming out, especially portable technology. A VR headset is a good example. Phones, AirPods, tablets, laptops, and all manner of new technology coming out. What can we create for that? Because it's constantly evolving, constantly changing, and it's easy to be quite quick to put out a product. New technology comes onto the market. Maybe the carry case that comes with it is subpar. You can get hold of it, create something for it, start advertising. So new tech is, is really easy pickings, and not a lot of people capitalize on that, I think. So if you want to start creating new products, new products that sell well, look at new tech, what can you create for that? Okay, and not just new technology, new popular products that come onto the market, that can fit in a pocket, that are handheld, that need to be carried in some kind of capacity. New cameras, for example. So if you're creating designs and products for new technology, then I see the future for high margin leather goods outside of handbags as, as pretty good. So question number three, this is going to be a difficult one to answer on a, on a podcast because it's it's not necessarily a visual format, but this individual is, is looking to get help getting that perfect round 
Skive for a turned edge corner. And they go on to say that they can do it, but consistency is difficult. And I'm using the same technique on each corner. Perhaps it's a skill, practice, or knife edge, but it's the one thing turning me off making such items. So what they're saying is if you're creating a turned edge on leather products, and most of you know what that is, is where you thin the edge of the leather so you can turn it back on itself and then stitch it through. One of the challenges is on a straight, if you're skiving a piece of leather straight, it's you know not, not difficult, but creating a skive on a corner can be a bit of a challenge. So what's some techniques? Well, really the, the answer is in the question there. Perhaps it's skill, practice, or the knife edge. But it's one thing turning me off. Now, I, I remember once I got a brand new skiving knife. I think it was the Blanchard knife that's behind me in the workshop, uh, which is made from high-speed steel. And they, they come real... I can't say they come sharp from the factory. They come with a kind of a serving suggestion of an edge. But I went through the various grades, various grits on a diamond hone and took it down and then finished it off on polishing compound and then got that thing so sharp that it would literally pop hairs. And after having a bit of fun with it, I asked someone who has absolutely no skiving experience or any leather craft experience to try the knife out. And I just gave them a little bit of coaching on how to safely skive with a knife, skiving away from your hand. But they have, this is the first time they've ever touched a skiving knife. They skived an edge that I think would take somebody perhaps six months to a year to learn how to do. And you could say, okay, yeah, but you've got Phil who's standing over them, coaching them through it. That's a definite advantage for sure. But the biggest differentiating factor was they took a knife that was ridiculously sharp so that it cut through it like butter with little to no resistance. I mean, it was so sharp, the fibers of the leather were parting themselves before the blade even touched them through fear of that blade edge. Okay, that sharp. So having a sharp knife doesn't just give you an edge, excuse the pun, it makes all the difference. It is your foundation of learning how to skive. If you learn how to skive and your knife isn't razor, razor sharp, you're not learning how to skive. You're learning how to skive with a blunt blade. And that's a different thing. It's a bit like learning to juggle and surfing on a surfboard at the same time, and then you can't do it, so you conclude that you're no good at juggling. No, you stand on the beach, dig your feet into the sand, get a solid foundation, then begin learning how to skive. So my recommendation, not necessarily to the person asking the question, but for people who are listening to this, is spend as much time as you can learning how to sharpen. It is one of the most important skills to learn in leather craft amongst how to cut leather accurately, how to stitch it and finish edges, Having a sharp knife is a foundation skill that's vitally important. It's one of the reasons why I have two courses on it in the Leathercraft Masterclass, uh, Techniques of the Blade and Techniques of the Blade Part 2, Advanced Sharpening. It reminds me of a quote, and I could be completely wrong here, but I think it was an American president that said something on the lines of, and 
don't hate me here if I get this wrong. If I have six hours to cut down a tree, I'll spend the first five sharpening the axe. And that is exactly what it should be like when learning how to skive, even learning how to create a blade edge to cut leather with. When it cuts through like butter, your cuts are going to be more accurate. So spend as much time as you can learning how to sharpen. Then once you have that edge that can literally split a hair, take a hair from your head, okay? And then will it cut into the hair? It doesn't have to cut it in half necessarily, but will it cut into the hair on the heel of the blade, in the middle, the belly section of the blade, or the tip of the blade, all the way along? Will it do it then? Then you're ready. If you rub your skiving knife along the hair and it doesn't do that, it's not quite there. Even a 98% there skiving knife isn't doesn't compare to that perfect edge and guys you just need to get the time invested into sharpening because not only does it make it easier not only does it make it safer not only does it prevent you stretching the leather as you're pushing your blade through it but it's going to make skiving fun a lot of people hate skiving no one who has a beautifully sharpened edge that can cut through hairs hates skiving and the reason being is there's a joy to feel that blade gliding through the leather seeing that little ribbon of leather come off the top and then you look at it and see how consistent it is if you like give someone with experience myself if you give me a blade that's 95 percent sharp i'm still not going to give you a, a a great skive at the end of it it makes that much difference having a great edge and getting back to the question Perhaps it's skill, practice, and knife edge. Yeah, practice, 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 practice. If you only ever perform these techniques when you're actually making the product, you're never going to get enough time and experience on that technique. If the first time you try hand stitching is when you're making a wallet, the stitching is probably going to be horrendous. If you first start out practicing the stitching over and over and over and over and over again, and then take that skill that you've honed and put it into a project, you're going to see a mammoth difference in the outcome and the look to your seams. Same with edge finishing, same with cutting, same with so many things in leathercraft. It's important to spend time practicing the foundational skills, the essential skills, and then moving on to the project. So I would set aside some scrap leather and then just focus on getting that corner skive in if you're looking for a project, anyone out there for a project where I actually use that and teach that, it's in the Turned Edge Passport Wallet, which is one of the courses in the masterclass. Moving on to the next question. An interesting one. Processes that allow you to do more work, but still keep your attention to detail. Okay, so they're asking for tips on processes that allow you to do more work, so higher productivity, but still maintaining the attention to detail. The first thing that I would recommend is solitude, okay? Spending enough time by yourself with no distractions. Now, it's very difficult for people who have, uh, where most of, most of the listeners here will be crafting at home, and they don't necessarily have a workshop. So, you might be in the kitchen, you might be in the living room, you might be in a bedroom, you might be in your basement crafting. And if you're lucky, a shed or an outbuilding where you can separate yourself a little bit. 
but trying to create quality time away from distractions. When I'm crafting or focusing on teaching these online courses, the phone goes off, it gets put away in case I sit down and have a coffee and I start scrolling through Instagram. Uh, it, it gets put away so that I'm not distracted. If somebody needs to uh, contact me, they would have to do it through the, I'm not going to say her wake word, but let's say it rhymes with Kubrexa. Uh, they can contact me through that and it's only in emergencies. And I'm isolated with fields of horses around me and not a lot of noise. So it's, it's the perfect situation and I'm very privileged to have this. I'm very grateful to have this where I can separate myself from the outside world and then just focus on exactly what I need to be doing. So try as much as you can to set aside time where you're not going to be disturbed. Some of the greatest minds in history and creators from great composers from hundreds of years ago to famous authors. Um, even J.K. Rowling is an example where she will go to a specific hotel in Scotland. She gets a the same room every single time she needs to write a book and she hardly ever comes out that room until the book is written. Nobody disturbs her, nobody contacts her, nobody knocks on the door during certain hours, and she's just left to do her thing. She's trying to get into workflow, that flow state, and that is what I recommend to you, because once you're in flow state, you accomplish so much more, and not only that, you're able to focus exactly on what you're doing with no distractions in between. So not only does your workflow improve, but your attention to detail is going to be that much greater. Another recommendation I have is to keep a small notebook. I have one I write down every single day exactly what I'm doing from a morning workout to when I finish and in between what I need to do. And then I have a macro calendar uh, which is, you know, every day of the month, right? Today is, is recording a podcast, for example. So I know what I'm doing at a glance and just organizing your time in that way is going to give you so much of an upper hand in order to put aside the time necessary so that you can be as undisturbed as possible so that you can get into that workflow. So organization of your time and then setting aside time for your hobby. I know it's very difficult if you've got a full-time job if you have family commitments and many other commitments that we have in today's busy world. But if you can set aside time, sacrifice time on Netflix or television or scrolling on uh, social media to devote to exactly what you want to be doing so that you can improve, allow you to get more work done and allow you more time just to focus on getting those details correct. So I hope that helps. Next question. This is a rather long-winded question, so bear with me on this one. Are you ready? Okay, I'll begin. Skiving. <laughs> that is literally it. Just the word skiving. <laughs> Not even a question mark. Okay, but all right, let's see if I can read between the lines. But I will say the quality of the answers in life are based around the quality of the questions that you ask. So I will have to interpret. The reason that you're you're saying skiving is probably I'm assuming that you believe you're not good at it and that you want to be good at it and you're asking me what my advice is to get you from where you are now to where you want to be uh, with your skiving this is going to be pretty short because i've already mentioned what you need to be doing and that is spending more time practicing your sharpening and then once you get to a point where you can literally cut a hair 
you can then and only then begin skiving practice. And then once you've got enough practice in on all the scraps of leather that you have, spending an hour or two listening to a podcast or listening to music and just focusing on that undisturbed, then you're going to be so much better at skiving. It will be unbelievable. It'll be night and day. Moving on. Interesting one. How to care for chrome tan leather. I think the reason there's not a lot of advice out there on how to really care for chrome tan leather in the community is because it doesn't really require that much care in comparison to vegetable tan leather or even combination tan leather. Chrome tan leather tends to be quite soft and supple already. It doesn't need conditioning in the same way as vegetable tan leather over time, which can dry out over the years with use, especially if it's something that goes in the outdoors and gets dry, then wet, then dry, then wet. Chrome tan leather is quite resilient in that way. You might argue that vegetable tan leather improves with time and looks better and ages better, which is more of an appearance thing and the patina thing, which is personal taste, really. But chrome tan leather looks its absolute best at the beginning and slowly begins to degrade over time. But it takes a very long time. Chrome tan leather is is, is very good leather. Okay, a lot of people think that it's, it's a lower level of quality leather. It is not a lower level of quality leather. The biggest problem with chrome tan leather is it's not expensive to produce. Therefore, the majority of crap leather out there and leather products that are made of terrible leather is going to be chrome tan. Chrome tan leather, biggest issue with that is, is it's got a stigma for being crap leather, but good quality leather from chrome tan leather from a good quality tannery and a source is excellent to work with and creates beautiful leather goods. Conditioning can be difficult because most, I'd say 90, probably way more than 90%, is going to have a pigmented finish on the surface. And if it's only ever allen and dyed, so there's no pigment, it's just dyed. Pigment is like a paint, okay? So it keeps a uniform color on the surface. If it's only ever dyed through, then even then, most of them will still have a clear coat so to speak, over the top, okay, some kind of finish. And it's these finishes and pigments that prevent your regular conditioning creams from being absorbed into the leather. Not that it needs it as much as uh, veg tan anyway, but that's going to be quite difficult. The best you can do is every so often use a leather cleaner, which comes with certain oils and treatments like lanolin, where you can spray some onto a cloth, clean the surface, clean the dirt off the surface, and it will infuse as much as it can through into the leather, something like lanolin or uh, another conditioning oil or agent. So those are my recommendations for caring for chrome tan leather. It's, it's, um, it requires very little, if at all. Moving on to the next question. What's the best user-friendly free app or design tool for designing patterns here's the thing i still mostly design and create patterns by hand with a pencil a blank sheet of paper and a ruler i'm a little bit old school in that way and then once i've i'm happy with the design i would then convert it to a pdf but not necessarily for myself for the courses because like the core video courses that i come with most of them have a pdf download that you can print off glue onto card 
when it's dry, cut it out, and you can use those as patterns to begin making the project that I'm teaching in the course. So I'm not necessarily making it for myself. So I don't have a lot of experience using um, design programs. I have I have used before, but most of the time I actually get a friend to do it for me. I've used uh, Adobe Illustrator. I don't know how user-friendly it is in comparison to others because it's the only one that I've ever used but it's probably the most popular one to use. There is a definite learning curve and you're going to have to watch a lot of YouTube videos um, before starting using it and probably during when you kind of keep getting stuck halfway through wanting to find a certain tool or wanting to do something. Uh, You keep having to search online and Google the questions and hopefully there's videos showing you how to do it. But I'd say Adobe Illustrator, but then again, I don't have experience using others. I'm not even aware of an app that can help you design patterns. Maybe there's one out there. If there is, and you're watching this on YouTube, guys, comment below and give your opinions on that because I, my opinion on that is is not really an educated one as I still design old school. Next question, deciding on leather type and color for your projects. So how do I decide what leather type to use and what color to use for a given project? So let's start with leather type. What what do I consider first when designing a project? So it's an interesting question because there is a bit of an art, a bit of a skill to deciding what leather to use on, on the right project. The wrong leather on a wrong project is going to make the outcome pretty terrible. If I try to use pure soft chrome tan leather, the type that you would use for clothing or couches, and I try to make a, a briefcase, like a traditional English briefcase that you'd normally use bridal leather for. If I try to use that using really soft chrome tan leather, it would end up being a floppy, almost unusable mess. It would hold itself very strangely. When you lifted it by its handle, it would contort into probably a weird looking shape. And the end result would be nigh on hilarious. And that that kind of thing is, is pretty obvious. But choosing the right leather is, is a, a, a real skill. And it depends on the outcome. So when you're before you even design and start drawing out a bag, a wallet, or whatever you want to create on a piece of paper, which is before you create a pattern, before you create a prototype, before you create uh, an end product, if that's what you want to do. It's a good idea just to write down everything that you want the end result to have do you want the wallet to be soft do you want it to feel supple what kind of edge are you going to have on it is it a burnished edge is it a turned edge is it edge paint if you're creating a bag do you want to create a a handbag that holds its shape when you place it on a table do you want to create a bag that's a bit more slouchy like a tote bag for example that doesn't really need to have a rigid shape Think about these things and these considerations before ever starting your project if you're creating for your own design. So say, for example, you want to have a bag that is both soft and rigid at the same time. So likely you're going to need chrome tan leather on the outside and to make it rigid, you're going to need to then glue that to something stiff like a leather board, some kind of leather reinforcement itself or even buckram and many other reinforcements to add stiffness to keep the shape of the bag or do you want it to be firm leather on the outside and quite smooth in which case perhaps vegetable tan leather might be a better option for you 
So start to come up with these ideas of what you want, and then you can work back from that and then start uh, essentially prototyping. Take a piece of leather, take some soft leather, glue it to the reinforcement. Does it have the right stiffness? And then work from there. So deciding on the leather type, it depends on what outcomes you want for your project. What color to use for the projects, that is very, very subjective. It's is a difficult one. Are you rather traditional or are you quite modern and contemporary in your designs? If you're a bit more modern and contemporary, you can play around with, with colors that seem a bit more vibrant or playful than you would if you wanted to keep things very, very traditional. Or you could have something that is traditional in design, like a leather briefcase, but have it in a very vibrant color to have that kind of contrast uh, to make the design a little bit more interesting. So that part is difficult to decide. I have my favorites. My, I think my favorite leather color of all time is, what well, I think, I know it is, burgundy. Then I would say navy. Then we're looking at something along the lines of London tan. Then I would say chestnut, like a nice dark, deep brown. And then I like to match those with, with different designs, but everybody has their favorites. It's very subjective. So that part really is down to you. But I do have a blog on color matching uh, on leathercraftmasterclass.com. Check out the blog, scroll down, and you'll see one on color matching. I think it's called something like the, uh, the cheat guides to uh, color matching. Uh, next question is not actually a question. It's a statement. Melted beeswax on leather handle. That was a nice touch. <laughs> I think they're talking about the leather handle that I was alligator leather handle that I put on a uh, hammer that I used for trunk making and, and the like. It's like a saddlery had hammer where I used uh, melted. Well, it wasn't melted beeswax. It was beeswax mixed with uh, olive oil and it was cedarwood oil, cedarwood oil, which gives it a nice smell, but also helps uh, prevent uh, bacteria build up, mold, and things like that in the leather. Last question. So let's tackle the last question here. What steps should one make to prevent feeling like their bags are plagiarism of others? Some shapes and locking mechanisms are so iconic that it makes me afraid of using them. For example, the Birkin lock. It always feels like plagiarism, even though someone else might have used it before. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. I feel exactly the same way. It's very, it's very difficult, a very contentious subject. People really do have very polarizing opinions on what is plagiarism or, or copying, okay? Or taking the design of someone else and making an, an homage or homage, depending where you're from, uh, on that. I, as much as I can, try and be as original as possible. I have my own philosophy and feelings on, on copying. I don't like it. Even if I really like the, the design on something, I just can't bring myself to make it. That's, that's my own problem. That's no one else's problem. And I don't judge other people that want to take ideas from famous bags or maybe even other makers with permission. But I really, as much as I can, try and make it original. Have I ever made something where it probably looks like something else that I've seen in the past without realizing it, I guarantee that I have at some point. If I currently, the, the English briefcase that I'm making, is it similar to any number of other brands out there that make English style leather briefcases? 
yeah, it's going to be very close in a, in a lot of ways. But when you're talking handbags, that really, I mean, if you look at some of the top designer brands out there, so almost every single one of them has the DNA in at least one or two of their their handbags of the Kelly, the Hermes Kelly. It's such an iconic design that you can see it. Just walk, sometimes walking through Harrods into the different departments, whether it's Loewe, whether it's Gucci, whether it's Givenchy or any number of, of high-end brands, you can see on some of their bags just that essence of Hermes iconic bags, sometimes the Birkin, but often you can look at it and go, yeah, there's some part of that. You can just tell by the little strap that comes around the side or the gusset shape or the overall shape of it. There's some kind of Kelly bag DNA in there. And it's so difficult to separate yourself from famous bags because there's just so many varieties out there that you can come up with something that you think is completely unique, but it in some aspects is going to be very similar to a bag that somebody else has made or another brand has produced. In fact, there was an interesting story. I went to Musée du Bagage, which is a baggage museum in France. Where is it now? It's in Eastern France. Is Alsace. A um, good friend of mine, uh, Jean-Philippe, and his wife very kindly uh, hosted me uh, about three years ago now, four years ago? No, about three years ago. Uh, for the day where I came to visit them and, and they took me to a museum and they very kindly put a lot of their pieces in the museum and donate the, the pieces to the museum. Okay, so Jean-Philippe has a, a brand, Le Malincroix, it's called, and they uh, refurbish trunks, cases and vintage bags and pieces like that. And uh, he donated a lot of them to the museum. And they gave me a, a guided tour of the museum in person, which was really nice, fantastic day out. And if ever you're in uh, in France, especially around the region of Alsace, even just for the food and the wine, guys, oh, God, beautiful place, beautiful, beautiful place. But check out the Musée de Bagage because it's fantastic and it's a paradise for people, especially if you love vintage leather goods. But it's not just about bags and cases and trunks. There are all sorts of leather, leather trinkets and items in there throughout history from the 1800s up until modern times. Um, but while I was getting a tour, something caught my eye. And I looked across the room and I saw what at first glance looked like a, a rather odd-looking Birkin bag. But obviously it wasn't. And it was a vintage piece. It was probably predating the Birkin by about, I don't know, 50 to 70 years. But it had that flap over the top. It had the uh, leather strap coming round the front to lock it into place. The locking mechanism from Hermes wasn't there. But the shape of the bag, the look of the bag, the design of the bag was just, oh, that's the, that's the original Birkin. And as I got closer, I realized it was made by Louis Vuitton. And it wasn't a handbag. In fact, it was a laundry bag. And it was a laundry bag that you would have in a trunk. So when wealthy people would travel at that time, they would take this around with them. And when they're staying in their hotels, they would fill this bag with laundry and hand it to a porter or whatever and take it away and have fresh clothes bought back. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? That's where 
the essence of that design came from because it, you look at it and you think there's no way that whoever designed the Birkin for Jane Birkin didn't have that in mind. And I instantly kind of questioned that story that um, it was designed by uh, the, the chief designer at Hermes or something like that on a plane with Jane Birkin on a napkin. Maybe they did. And maybe they got the idea from the back of their mind from this laundry bag that they saw and they just always liked the design and wondered how they were going to incorporate it. But trying to come up with a completely original design, even by companies that get copied all the time, and as you, as you said, it's just so difficult that you have to draw the line somewhere and you have to decide for yourself where that line is. I think a one-for-one -one copy for me is a no-go having the essence of something in there as long as it's not too obvious is acceptable for me okay that's my personal opinion and that matters to one person in the world which is me so everybody has to have that line you have to kind of decide where that is for you there is a, a company in france in paris a very small brand uh called verbray and they make a bag called lagar it's the most fascinating design in the world. I love it. It's beautiful. I want to buy one just to have it on the mantelpiece as inspiration. I love it like it's my favorite piece in the whole world. You might not look look at it and think it's anything, okay? It's just, it's such a personal thing. I've always, always wanted to make it, but I can't bring myself to, okay? That's my problem, no one else's problem. You might think that's hilarious, but I just can't bring myself to copy it. If I'm going to have it, I'm going to buy it and nothing else. I've always wanted to, I mean, I would love nothing more than to go there and spend a weekend with one or two of their craftsmen and just pay them to have me make it with them in their shop. So it's like, it's still from Vibrai, but it was made by me, that I would accept. But making it from afar by looking at it and trying to copy it, I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> it's just my quirk. It's just uh, it's just my thing. And it's going to be very personal. But yeah, I'll put a, a shot on screen. Maybe I've done that already of what it looks like. But there's something fascinating about it that's really cool. And it was designed by someone who's not a designer either. It was just something they came up with. I, I think it's just beautiful. But guys, I hope that's answered some of your questions and maybe that's answered some of the questions that you didn't know you had. Uh, really interesting thought processes going on there. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. Thank you for sending through those questions. Some real quality ones, some real absolute diamonds. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget right now, you can still go to leathercroftmasterclass.com, enter your email address, and I will send you a free hand-stitching video. It's a really great one for people who are brand new to the craft to get you started on the right path. Leathercraftmasterclass.com, absolutely free. Don't be crazy. Thousands of people have got it already, so don't miss out on that one. In the meantime, thank you for listening in, or if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for watching me. And if you have any questions or comments, or perhaps you have your some of your own answers and things that you would like to share with the community, don't forget to comment below and leave those. Like, subscribe, and I'll see you in the next podcast.